A couple of things before we jump into uh, the sermon uh, that I want to cover. One of them is that at the end of this month, we have our impact weekend, our annual impact weekend, where we talk about our local, global, and local opportunities for ministry uh, for an entire weekend. One of the things that we want to focus on, it's, or it's one of the things that we're going to talk about, is how we can have an impact all over the world by just the travel that we do. And so to get ready for that, to kind of show... Uh, it's, it's called, uh, well, somebody has called it mapping your assets, uh, looking at your congregation and seeing some of the place. And we're going to show you some examples of what can be done if you're traveling for business or even sometimes for pleasure, some of the ways that you can have a global impact personally. And so to do that, to get ready for that, to show you kind of a map, we are going to do a simple texting. So if you'll text 555-888 and write in the word Five Oaks Impact, uh, you'll get a question to answer and it'll have to do with this. So we want to encourage you to do that because it's a great opportunity that we have in this, in this world now uh, with travel to be able to impact people's lives. All right, so second thing is uh, just with the whole uh, virus and the coronavirus and everything, it's just kind of really brought, I think, to the forefront uh, what the dangers of just regular influenza, uh, the regular flu. And, and so there's been a lot of conversation about that. And we been thinking about that and thinking we, we need to do a little bit more during flu season to, to try to, to address that. And so a couple of things is we, we do have hand sanitizers up here, although I want to encourage you to, uh, if you have some of your own, use that before you come for communion. Um, because when we run out of this, we've got no more and there's no place to buy it. <laughs> so uh, use your own uh, <laughs> if you can. Um, also, uh, if you're new with us, we, the way that we practice it, we take the bread and we dip it in the cup. Uh, and that's where, you know, problems can happen as our fingers sometimes go into it. So we've got less of the juice in the bottom of the cup so that even if you stick it all the way down to the bottom, there's less likely unless you kind of hold on to your bread like this and go like this. So uh, hopefully that'll help. And then we have these packets, which we have every week, but if you prefer to use one of these packets, feel free to use the packet. It has the bread and it has the juice underneath. So, um, all right. So uh, now to the sermon. So on, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, James Bryan Smith tells a story about he and a friend who had gotten together. His friend was named Mark and... Mark had explained to James Bryan Smith, he had said, I've got a friend who says he's a Christian, but he's not living like a Christian. And specifically, he was really concerned because his friend, who was a good friend of his, uh, was not treating his girlfriend well. And he had a bunch of things that he had seen in their relationship that suggested to him that uh, he didn't really respect her and wasn't, at least wasn't acting respectfully towards her. And so... Uh, he said, I really, I really feel I need to, to go talk to him. And I've got a couple of options of what I'm going to do. And just wondering if you'd give me advice, which one of these should I do? And one of them, he said, I'm, I want to go to his house and kind of present the evidence for what, uh, what I've seen and, and talk about that. Or the other one is take someone else who's seen what I've seen. And both of us go and talk to him and try to, kind of try to straighten this out because he's thinking about marrying her. And I'm really concerned uh, about it. So, uh, undoubtedly, uh, you've had situations in, in your life where you have found yourself, uh, where you have a friend, a, 
close friend, sometimes it's a family member, and you've uh, watched some behavior that is consistent kind of behavior where they're maybe not treating their kids well or their spouse well uh, or their friends well, that sort of thing. Maybe you're a student and you've seen one of your youth group friends when he goes to school almost uh, completely deny their faith by the way that they're, they're acting. Or maybe it's just someone who did something hurtful to you or did something uh, wronged you in some kind of way. And in these kind of situations, sometimes we feel compelled that we need to go and talk to them, especially if they're a close friend uh, or a family member. So James Bryan Smith, after hearing the whole scenario, uh, didn't like either one of the plans that, uh, that Mark presented. So he offered to meet with Mark and to talk through Jesus' approach to situations like this. And he took him through the passage that we're looking at today. So that's what we're doing today. We're looking at the right way, Jesus' way, to help a close friend who's headed in the wrong way. And specifically, um, we're saying a close friend, I'm talking about a close friend because this isn't something you just do because you just know somebody. Uh, there, there may be situations where you're called upon to, you know, by the Spirit or because of a role or something like that to speak to someone about something, but it's, uh, it's usually something that you're going to do with someone who's close. And if you enjoy doing this, by the way, listen really carefully because you might need to hear this more than anybody else. Uh, anyways, so that's what we're doing. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, uh, the first 12 verses we're looking at today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. It's page 971 in those Bibles. If you're using the electronic version of the Bible, we're using the NIV, the New International Version. If you're new here, hopefully you got one of these green brochures on your way in. And on the inside, you'll find a sermon application guide. There's there's room for taking notes on this. And uh, also there are reflection questions. Uh, because we're, you know, even though every week at Five Oaks we take out our Bibles and we study the Bible carefully, uh, we're, we're not just about gaining information. We're about bringing the story of God to life in our daily lives. So uh, that's why those reflection questions are there and we use them in our small groups as well. So we're in a series working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we're in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5. And I think we have three weeks left, this being one of those weeks Uh, one of those three weeks. So that's what what we're doing. Before we jump into the passage, uh, we're going to pray as we do every week. As we're about to listen to God's word, we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's word for us. And so please join me in prayer. This prayer is based on Psalm chapter 5. Heavenly Father, we come to you with reverence, and we know that it is only by your great love that we can know you. By your Spirit, open our eyes and our hearts to see and understand your word to us. Move us and change us to be more like you. Lead us in your righteousness. Guide us in your ways and in your love for the sake of your kingdom. Father, we also bring to you today just the situation worldwide with the coronavirus and the, um, just how it's impacting people's lives uh, in so many ways, not to mention the loss of some lives, uh, how it's impacting uh, our world financially. Father, I pray that uh, you would bring calm, that you would um, guide uh, world leaders 
and that you would bring healing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We pick up as Jesus is teaching his disciples. Just want to say a quick word here. This, uh, this passage, it's hard to know if it all fits together. It's hard to know if there is a common theme that's running through it. Uh, there's basically three different theories, at least, for how this is. Uh, it might be that Jesus, it's cha- just changing subjects, feels abrupt to us. Um, it might not have been abrupt to them. Uh, it might be that Jesus spoke more on these than what Matthew recorded. The Sermon on the Mount may have had a lot more uh, information. Or it might be that Matthew has gathered together some teachings and put them together as he has in other places, because that's what he does. He, he gathers together teachings and has five blocks of teaching in his gospel, which is unique to the four gospels. So we don't know, uh, but verses 6 through 12, in many ways, don't seem to apply directly to verses 1 through 5. I'm going to apply 6 through uh, 12 to 1 through 5, not saying that they are necessarily connected, but that there are some principles there that help us with what he's saying in the first five verses, all right? So hopefully that didn't confuse you, uh, but hopefully you'll, you'll catch on if, if that didn't make sense. So beginning in verse 1, it's, Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. For which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. All right, so we're talking about the right way to help a close friend who's going uh, the wrong way. And um, the first thing that I think Jesus is saying, if I were to summarize it, the first thing is keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Look at your own heart that is so quick to condemn and recognize your own sins that you're so quick to excuse. It's only the first step. But be quiet. Now, we talked to a couple people this morning who heard the sermon last night, and both of them said, man, this, this one is hard in parenting. <laughs> and I don't really have an answer for you. <laughs> um, I think there's some things that will be helpful uh, on how to maybe slow down the condemnation that sometimes happens as we, as we parent and we're in a hot situation and things are moving at the speed of parenting. And so... Um, But I think this is where it starts, and I think this is what Jesus is saying. Look into your own heart before you say anything. And notice notice how you are um, so quick to condemn other people. 
And also, notice how quick you are to ignore the sins that are in your own life. I think that's what he's saying in the first four verses. Do not judge, verse 1, or you will be judged. And then in verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, when Jesus says, do not judge, what he's talking about very specifically is condemning someone. This isn't about making just any kind of judgment at all. This is about condemning someone. Jesus is saying, don't condemn someone when you do see them doing something that is wrong. You've made a judgment. They're doing something wrong, but don't, don't condemn them. Jesus isn't saying, don't make moral judgments. He's not saying, hey, you're no better than your friend, so you can't say that what he's doing is wrong. That's how a lot of people take this passage. You, you can't look at someone else and say they're doing something right or wrong um, because you're, you're not perfect, but he's not saying that that's, that's the case. And we know that because in a few verses, uh, next week, he's going to ask you to make moral judgments. And he does all throughout the Gospels. He asks you to make moral judgments. And the New Testament make moral judgments. So we have a question, a reflection question, for example, that has some passages from the New Testament where we are called to make moral judgments and sometimes even to take some, some action on those moral judgments. But the word judge has a whole range of meanings. Just like if you go to a dictionary and you see, you know, definition number one, two, three, four, five on any given word, depending on the context, that word is going to be used in different ways. Same thing with this word. And in this context, it's speaking about condemning someone. So he's saying, look in your own heart how quick you are to condemn other people and excuse your own sin. Now this is the first thing that James Bryan Smith wanted to what wanted to explore with his friend Mark. He wanted Mark to ask himself, have I condemned my friend? Am I going to go into this conversation with, a, with an attitude of condemnation towards him? And so um, the conversation, it needs to happen. He feels called to have this conversation. He's seen some behavior that really needs to be called out if you're a good friend, especially if you're both brothers in Christ. Uh, but Jesus makes it clear, and, and Jesus makes it clear in the following verse. So look at verse 5. It says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So first, take the plank out of your own eye, and then help your brother with what's in his eye. The conversation needs to happen, but first you have to take the plank out of your own eye. You have to recognize that you have a plank in your eye. So the, the picture that Jesus is painting here is purposely humorous. It is funny. People would have chuckled. It's not a laugh-out-loud type joke, but people would have, you know, would have thought about it and kind of smiled at the kind of picture that he's painting here, especially if you hear this for the first time. You know, we're used to this passage, and so we get really serious right away about what it's about. But they would have heard the humor that is in it. Imagine you've got something in your eye. You've got a speck of sawdust in your eye, and it's bothering you, and someone wants to help you. They lunge themselves at you, but they've got a plank coming out of their own eye. That's the picture that we have here. One commentator says this, he says, with this illustration, Jesus tells us how idiotic we are, but he does it with warmth and humor. No one needs someone with a plank protruding from their face messing with their eye. We just don't need that. Mark was right. 
Mark in the story. He is right to want to help his friend. But as Smith explored the situation with him, it was evident that he did have a condemning attitude towards his friend. He could see it. He was wound up. He wanted to have this conversation. He wanted to set his friend straight. Jesus is saying that if you want to help your friend, you have to approach your friend in total humility. You have to go in humbly into this conversation. You can't come in like judge and jury, condemning your friend's behavior or coming in as if you're superior in some way because you've noticed this thing in this other person's life. Jesus is saying when you go to your friend, go as a fellow struggler. That has to be as evident as is humanly possible. The next thing that James Ryan Smith wanted to show Mark was that he needed to approach this in a way that he would want someone to approach him if he was in similar circumstances. So the second thing that we can glean from this passage about these kind of conversations is think about how you would want to be approached if you were in your friend's shoes. So Smith took him to Matthew chapter 7, 12. And I know a lot of you are reading James Bryan Smith's book. Uh, I, he, he thinks it all fits together, that everything from verse 6 on is all going back to verses 1 through 5. I don't agree with him for several reasons, and uh, he's pretty alone in that position. Um, uh, but, but I think it's, it's correct to be able to apply some of the principles there. So look at verse 12. It says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is another place where Jesus is just giving the summation of the law, which rabbis did a lot. It's like, how can we narrow down the law to one, two, three, ten commands uh, of God? And so he's doing this, uh, and this is called the golden rule, and it's not original with Jesus. He's, uh, there were other rabbis talking about this. There were other people talking about this, philosophers that were saying things like this. So, uh, of course, this applies to a lot more, but it has a lot to say about how we should approach a friend who's going in the wrong way. Smith asked Mark a question. He says, have you ever been confronted in the way that you're planning to confront your friend? And immediately, you know, the light went on for Mark, and he said, yeah, I was, I was a pretty immature Christian at the time, and I was, you know, I had a pretty, you know, kind of a partying lifestyle doing some things that I really shouldn't have been doing. And someone in my Bible study group confronted me on it with a lot of, you know, a lot of juice in the confrontation, telling me I can't be living like that as a Christian, and who do I think I am as a Christian to be living like that? And he said, how did it go? I said, not very well. I was embarrassed. I fell back into a corner. I got really angry, and I never went back to the Bible study. <laughs> so Mark asked James Ryan Smith, he said, so should I just let him figure it out for the himself, just let the Holy Spirit speak to him. And that's kind of the answer that uh, those of us who are cowards <laughs> come up with. <laughs> Sorry, I include myself there. Uh, so Smith said, no, Jesus actually calls us to help with our brother's speck. And he showed him in this text. But how would you like the conversation to happen if you were in your friend's shoes? So spend some time thinking and praying about that. So next, Smith took him to verses 7 through 11, and, um, which leads to the next thing that we need to do. And this is where, when we're going at the speed of, um, we're going at the speed of, uh, 
of parenting and stuff, this, this can get a little bit difficult. Um, you'll have to figure out some ways to do this. But the third thing is to pray until you're ready to talk. Pray until you're ready to talk. And by ready to talk, I mean pray until you're ready to approach your friend as a fellow struggler. Now, this is not an excuse never to approach your friend. Like, ah, didn't get there. Again, that's a cowardly thing to do. I think we come to God and we come asking. Like he says, ask, seek, knock. I'll, I'll answer that prayer. I'll answer the prayer in a way that is good for you, like a father would give something good to the son. But we need to come asking, seeking, and knocking. So Jesus is talking about prayer here. He's saying that if we need to ask, that we need to ask, but he's also saying we need to persist in prayer. To not just like put out the request and then move on, but to keep persisting. There's other parables that Jesus tells where he makes the point. He says, this, this parable means you should pray and persist in prayer. I mean, he tells you what the interpretation is. And so this is about persisting in prayer. And it applies really well to a tough conversation that we might want to have. In prayer, we can ask God to show us our planks so that we would truly be humbled and not go into a conversation wanting to condemn our friend. We can focus on God's grace in prayer. God's grace towards us and pray for a grace-filled way of talking to our friend to show us a way to talk to our friend in a grace-filled way. And that's what Mark did. He spent a couple of weeks praying and then he met with Smith. And Smith said right from the, right from the start when they got together for a meal to talk about this, he said you could see something was different about Mark. It's like he was a, a transformed person. The anger was gone. He was peaceful. And he explained to Smith, he said, praying changed everything, Jim. I feel a lot more compassion for my friend and my need to attack him, almost gone. <laughs> so should I talk to him? And Smith said, yeah, you're probably ready. So they decided to get together again in a couple of weeks after the conversation had happened, and they did. And Mark said that he went in in a posture of support rather than in a posture of condemning, telling him what he was doing wrong, try to fix him. He went in more in a posture of support. And what happened next really surprised him because his friend just started really sharing his life with him and said, you know, I grew up with an abusive father and a negligent, uh, 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 distant father. And he said, I'm really afraid that I'm going to repeat all my father's mistakes. I live in that fear. And then he asked Mark to pray for him and actually just walk with him through, through this journey. Now, it doesn't always turn out that way. If you go through all the steps and you have the conversation, it doesn't always turn out that way. And that's why Jesus says in verse 6, what Jesus says in verse 6, not why he says it, but why what he says in verse 6, teaches us that in situations like this, we need to take it slow, and we need to discern, as we're taking it slow, always discerning, what is the person's current receptivity to the gospel? So look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. James Ryan Smith explains in his book that he thinks this is speaking directly to verses 1 through 5. Almost every scholar believes that that is not the case, that what's sacred and pearls, he, he says sacred and pearls are your, your condemning words. 
it doesn't really fit. But what's sacred in the pearls is in Jesus' teaching consistently the gospel. And, and so it, the gospel is good news. That's what the word means. It's the good news of Jesus' kingdom. As he would describe, it's a good news of his grace. And while there's some disagreement among scholars about some of the fine points of what is being said there or the implications of it, most scholars agree that Jesus is at the very least saying some people are simply not receptive to the gospel and that trying to kind of shove it down their throats to keep trying to put, put it out in front of them is a recipe for having them become really angry at you and turn on you. And so... Uh, that's a little bit, if you were here last week, I'm not going to explain what I mean by this. Go back and watch the video. I think it's really a helpful idea. But this is wisdom from, uh, this, is, this is wisdom. This is practical common sense. This is what uh, Scott McKnight calls um, ethics from below. And it's all through the teaching of Jesus. He's just telling you, hey, yes, recognize people aren't open to it. They'd be like, you're giving them something they don't want. They're going to turn on you just like a pig would or a dog would who's looking for food and you're giving them something that's not food. It's wasted on them. But here's where this applies to our question about what is the right way to help a close friend who is headed in the wrong way. When you try to help a friend who's headed in the wrong direction, what you have to do when you go into that conversation is you have to point them to the gospel. Now this I can say for sure is it's going to be some variation on that. When you finally have the conversation, it's not about condemning, it's, about, it's not about quoting commandments or quoting the law and showing how they're breaking it, that kind of a thing. It's pointing them to the implications of the gospel of God's grace. That's going to be part of the conversation. It's going to be part of the way that we can go in as fellow strugglers who are also completely dependent on God's grace. When you come to them in humility and you've thought through how you're going to treat them in a way that you would want to be treated and you've prayed until you're ready to talk, what you bring them is the gospel. You bring grace the grace of Jesus who died for our sins, who rose to give us new life, that we can have new life in him, that he can empower that. You bring the gospel gracefully and humbly as a fellow struggler. But what if your close friend who professes to be a Christian isn't open to the gospel as it applies to that situation? What if they become defensive? What if your friend attacks you by pointing out, hey, you're not so perfect, and you go, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Sorry if, if there's anything about what I said that communicates that. But they persist on attacking you and want nothing of what you're saying. What is that person doing in that situation? They're acting piggishly. They're acting doggishly. If Mark's friend had turned to him, turned on him, instead of confessing to him his struggles, Mark would need to discern that he's not ready to apply the gospel to that relationship with his girlfriend. To persist in applying the gospel to that would be just to, just to like, get him angrier and angrier until he's ready. And you and I need to do the same thing. If our friend turns on us, we need to conclude that they're not ready for hearing the gospel applied to their situation. But that's not a, like, then a superior position. Because how many times have you not been right now Right now, there are things in my life where I don't want to apply the gospel to it. Every single one of us has something in our lives that even if somebody brings it in the most loving way, we're going to go, 
I'm not sure you're right, and we're going to become defensive because we can't even see it. It's like it's a blind spot or something in our lives. So we can't, you know, we're no different than, than they are. We, we also resist. So don't act superior, don't condemn them. We're not always open. Instead, keep act, asking, seeking, and knocking in prayer. Now, again, as a parent, there's some things that we have to do. We still have to avoid condemnation. We need to apply the gospel to our parenting. Just going to look a little different in that situation. So I want to tell you a story that Tim Keller uh, tells, illustrating how it is that some people aren't open to the gospel. It's a great story. And uh, I think it'll be very helpful. He's talking about people who are just not open to the gospel uh, in terms of its saving power, in terms of saving message. The gospel is more than the we oftentimes refer to the gospel as the message of salvation. The message of salvation is one small part of the gospel. The gospel is the whole story of God in the teaching of Scripture. So, um, but that, he's talking about people who are just not ready to hear the saving message of the gospel. But I think it applies to our situation. So, in his younger days, Keller, uh, as a pastor, he served on a committee in his denomination where pastors who were wanting to plant churches would come to this committee and would kind of pitch their idea and seek funds and prayer and all that sort of thing and kind of an okay from the denomination. And as part of that, they would always ask him to share their faith story. And he says there was this one time where four guys came in and all of them uh, had diverse stories, but this one element, the same in all of their stories. They said, I went to church all my life, but I never heard the gospel in my church. So after the first, fourth person had come in and had left, there was an older pastor on the committee, and his name was Frank Barker, he says. And Barker said, you know, they're all saying they went to church and didn't hear the gospel. But let me tell you a story. And he told them about how he had been raised in church, and he had felt, once he turned to Christ, he said, I felt like I'd never really been preached the gospel. In fact, he'd even gone to graduate school. He'd taken courses in religion and theology, and he had not heard the gospel. Then he went to the Air Force, and in the Air Force, a chaplain explained the gospel to him, and he received, put his faith in Christ, and he received what the gospel, the, the saving uh, grace of God. That he, you know, he said, up till then, I thought it was, I needed to earn God's favor, and recognizing, no, I don't need to earn God's favor. I need to trust God and what Jesus did for me, what I can't do for myself, that it's all grace. At one point, Frank Barker said this to the chaplain. He says, you know, all my life, nobody ever told me the gospel before you did. Nobody. None of the preachers, none of the books. Even Martin Luther didn't know anything about the gospel. Yeah, good, good chuckle at that one because um, that was a clue. <laughs> and the chaplain looked at him and he said, why would you say that, Frank? <laughs> He said, well, a year ago, I, read, I did a course on the Reformation. I read a book by Martin Luther, and he never said anything about the gospel in there. <laughs> chaplain said, you might want to go back and read that book again. So he did. And the older pastor said, I went back and I got out the book that I had read before, and on almost every page I had underlined, I had highlighted the gospel, and I hadn't seen it. <laughs> My eyes hadn't been open to it. I'd seen it, but I was piggish unable to appreciate the value and the beauty of the jewel. I look right at it, and I look right through it. 
The reality is, the irony is, even though I'm telling this story, there might be some people in our church who will leave Five Oaks, hear the gospel someplace else, and finally respond to it and say, Five Oaks doesn't teach the gospel. <laughs> um, that's reality. Because he simply wasn't ready to hear it. And we're not always ready to hear it to our situations because the gospel applies to every situation in our lives. And God has a unique journey he's taking everybody on. And he's working on people's lives in different ways. And it's our job to be sensitive to what God is doing and where people are at as much as we possibly can, discerning in the spirit where people are at. So I want to leave you uh, today with a tool uh, that uh, I think you can use in situations like this. You can use this in your workplace, uh, but you can use this in relationships as well. It's a way of, uh, of approaching a difficult situation. Uh, that, uh, it's that kind of a tool. And it's a tool that we use on our staff, and we oftentimes remind each other, hey, that requires a 10-yard conversation. It's called a 10-yard conversation tool. And uh, we kind of um, will drive that home to each other because we might see that uh, the person doesn't, want, doesn't see this as a 10-yard conversation, and that would be a big, big, big mistake. So uh, if you're not a fan of football and you don't know any of the rules, <laughs> forgive me. I'll try to explain it real quickly. But a football field is 100 yards. I don't know what it is in meters. But it's 100 yards, and it's all marked out a yard at a time. And basically, you got a couple of ways to try to get the ball down the field when you're on offense. Uh, you can try to go for the long ball. You know, you throw the ball and somebody catches it and hopefully gets a touchdown. Or you can systematically work your way down the field because every 10 yards, you get a refresh. All right. Um, all right. So get the basic idea. You're just going 10 yards at a time. And so if you have a f conversation that's uh, coming up, the idea is, you know, a tough conversation. Don't drop everything. Don't go for the long ball. <laughs> Don't drop everything on that person. If at all possible, don't drop everything on that friend all at once. Uh, don't throw the long ball. Plan on having, plan on having a series of 10-yard conversations, a series of them. I know sometimes we're like, ah, you know, life is too busy. I can't have 10-yard conversations. But this is, it's, you, oftentimes if we just understand we're creating many more problems. Not only that, we're condemning ourselves. We go into some of these conversations too quickly. Jesus says, you're condemning yourself by the way that you're carrying on your conversations. So before you even have your 10-yard conversation, take Jesus' advice. Keep your mouth shut. Look at your own heart. And, and notice how quick it is to condemn other people, which is an amazing thing because we know our hearts better than anybody else knows our hearts. And we know how, as Jesus said, in this passage, you are wicked. <laughs> and we know how wicked we are. Unless you're in total denial. We know how wicked we are. And yet we look at someone else who we don't know completely and we think the worst of them and we think they're worse than we are. So keep your mouth shut. Notice. Take note of how quick we are to condemn. Take note of how, how easy it is for me to excuse sins in my life. But notice them in other people's lives. Before you have that 10-yard conversation, think about, number two, think about how you would want to be approached if you were in your friend's shoes. You can change everything. It's a golden rule. Jesus gave it for a reason. He wants us to use it. 
Before you have the first 10-yard conversation, pray until you're ready to talk. And don't stop praying. Persist in that, even after the first 10-yard conversation and the second and the third. And take it slow, always discerning that person's current receptivity to correction, to the gospel, the gospel of God's grace and love. Do it 10 yards at a time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who works in our hearts. And in a sense, you, uh, our entire life is a series of 10-yard conversations with you. You want us to live all out for you, but you know we're but dust. You know that our hearts are deceptive. You remind us over and over again. And you call us to walk with you in this conversation. You know that, you tell us that until you return, we're not going to get it all together. We thank you that you're a God who, through Christ, doesn't condemn us. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to not only accept that for ourselves, help us to spread that to others, to share that with others. Help us not to be so calloused that we wouldn't care about a close friend or family member who's going in a destructive direction. Help us not to be such cowards that we avoid having the tough conversation but help us to enter into those conversations. Thank you, Father. We need your empowering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're moving into the third and final, uh, third of four movements in our worship service. We're going to respond. We begin our response here. We do it in a number of ways. We do it through prayer. We have, we'll have someone from our prayer team probably back there. We have a kneeling bench over there. We have a prayer stations up here where as you light a candle, you are praying for the light of Christ to shine in the life of someone who's far from God. And uh, we celebrate communion together. So during the first song, there's no particular order to it. We invite you to come to this table, the table's in the back. And, um, and by the way, the packets are not gluten-free, but this bread is in the front and in the back. Um, but you take the bread, remembering the body of Christ broken for you, and you dip it in the cup, remembering the blood of Christ shed for you. We invite anyone who's a follower of Jesus to participate. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, our invitation to you is not to participate in communion because that wouldn't make sense, but we invite you to put your faith in Jesus alone, in his grace alone, for your salvation. It's not about you, it's about what he did. And become part of his family. And then join us in communion. All right, let's continue our worship by responding together.